This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, which way is the reparations struggle going? There is still no consensus among Black Americans on what the United States must pay for centuries of slavery and oppression. And Chicago is the city where community control of the police is closest to becoming a reality. We'll get an update from a local activist. But first, the United States government last week seized the website of the Iranian news service Press TV and three dozen of that country's other internet outlets, claiming the sites were spreading quote, disinformation, unquote. What gives Washington the right to roam the planet, shutting down other nations' information services? We pose that question to Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. What it says is that the U.S. will continue to operate as a rogue state for as long as it can get away with it. One way that people need to uh, understand what is happening with this uh, latest move by the state. Uh, And this is a a direct state move as opposed to the uh, big tech, which is actually part of the state also, but because they under private ownership, we can pretend like they're now part of the ideological state apparatus. They engage in direct censorship. But this time the U.S. state is now directly involved in seizing platforms that are tasked with the responsibility, according to their missions, of reporting um, and commenting on issues affecting their country and and the world. And the U.S. has decided that what they are, in fact, doing is what they call disinformation, uh, and therefore they will seize their platforms and prevent them from disseminating information. Now, I say rogue state, because... This is a clear violation of of Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that says that that we have a right, the people of the uh, the planet have a right to the free dissemination of information and analysis, to be able to to engage in free thinking, et cetera, et cetera. But the U.S. has taken upon itself to determine and define what is acceptable official knowledge that can be disseminated to the masses, if you will. So this is a continuation of a, of a very um, troubling trend. Not only the fact that they did it, Glenn, but the lack of effective and loud opposition to it, that if a state is identified as an enemy for whatever reason, then the U.S. feels that it can move with impunity in violating international norms and international law uh, in order to advance its particular geostrategic interests. And that's quite troubling. Well, what the United States has said is that these outlets are not just outlets for unfriendly states, but they're disinformation outlets. But that's the same charge that has been made against domestic internet sites like Black Agenda Report and about a score of other sites uh, four years ago. I'm sure the list is longer now. So what's to stop them from shutting us down for disinformation? Nothing. And what's dangerous about the move against Press TV, for example, is that there have been, there are a number of black radicals and others who have appeared on Press TV, uh, including some folks from uh, Black Agenda Report, um, and so if the U.S. state has says that this outlet engages in disinformation, then the full implication is that everyone else who participated, uh, who may have expressed views uh, that are counter to the official positions of the U.S. state, then we are all subject to being uh, charged with engaging in not only disinformation, but disinformation in the service of a foreign government. So there is no real prevention except for potential political opposition 
uh, to the state, uh, the U.S. state, uh, moving against blockage report uh, websites and these other organizations. And that's the danger that we are facing in this growing neo-fascist environment, a neo-fascist environment being pushed by uh, neoliberal uh, totalitarians who make up and are in control uh, of the U.S. state at this moment. You were speaking of big tech. Thomas Ferguson, the political scientist and researcher, has shown rather conclusively that big tech is the closest sector of the ruling sectors to the Democratic Party, the most influential sector with the Democrats. Exactly. I mean, there's no, it's not even debatable in terms of the political alignment between Silicon Valley uh, and the liberal element, liberal bourgeois element of the of the ruling class and their uh, operating instrument, uh, the Democrat Party. Uh, so, and the, the far right sees that, they recognize that. Uh, even some elements of the uh, latte left in the U.S. recognize that, but uh, a large numbers of other people don't seem to, to recognize that alignment and don't seem to be able to make the proper assessment of the policies that are being pursued by big tech in support of the interests of the uh, Democrat Party and the internationalist liberal bourgeoisie that they represent. So this class struggle, this intra-class struggle that's taking place is resulting in the constraining of democratic space for all of us. And that will continue as long as there's no uh, real attention being applied, being given to this, and no real effective political opposition. Before we know it, they're going to shut down uh, all of us under the guise of security and protecting uh, the population uh, from these dangerous ideals and thoughts uh, from various sources outside of the country and inside for, you know, against the, the fifth continent working with these foreign entities. Yes, and in terms of a regime uh, that has now devolved to the point where it seems willing to outlaw every manifestation of anti-imperialism, what does that say about the actual strength and vitality of that of capitalism at that stage, that they can't stand to live in a world in which they are criticized? What it, what it says is that they are engaging in preemptive activity uh, to ensure that there is an ideological cocoon that they have, they can construct as they recognize and they know that the, the contributions that have been generated by uh, 40, more than 40 years of neoliberal policies have created a socioeconomic and political crisis that no matter how much they might dress it up or in an attempt to divert the attention of the masses, uh, it's not going away. And they have no uh, response to these contradictions and the social explosion that they know is coming uh, except to try to shield themselves to the extent that they can or and or uh, accept a, a fascist reform uh, to make sure that to maintain their hegemony. So, you know, they're moving before there's real effective opposition. They know that the uh, left is weak, uh, and that's why they are moving essentially against the far right, which they perceive to be the most dangerous potential uh, opponent at this moment. So, you know, they, they understand sometimes better than, um, than left forces the short and long-term ideological challenges that they are uh, preparing themselves for that. And in terms of the black community, I remember, of course, when lots of white social forces were much further to the right than verbally expressed today, but that black mainstream Democrats uh, were not nearly as right-wing, as pro-imperialist, as loudly pro-USA, USA, as they are now. It seems 
that the imperialist jingoism uh, has permeated much of the black political class much more deeply than than in past years. You're absolutely right. We have to recognize that as U.S. society as as a whole has moved to the right, so has Black America, if you will. And that moving toward the right has been reflected in the kinds of of representation that we see not only on the national level, but also on the on the local level in terms of these folks who have political perspectives and agendas that in no way can even be defined as liberal in the traditional sense of the word. So, you know, we have to recognize that because those forces also are attempting to try to maintain their role as the professional and managerial class charged with the responsibility of administering the the natives in their locales. So, you know, this intensifying ideological struggle uh, is reflective of the intensifying class struggle, not only in terms of the, the, the broader society, but the intensifying class struggle that's being waged and must be waged internally to the black community. Because as long as that professional managerial uh, misleadership class, if you will, is able to uh, carry out its function, then to the extent that that element will serve as a uh, continued break on the radicalization of the masses of African working class people and press in this country. So, you know, the instability that we see in this society and the legitimation crisis is one in which we see being being impacted uh, on the black leadership class also. Uh, and they are uh, have they have a tendency and they will and have aligned themselves with those powerful elements in the national state to ensure that their interests will be protected and that they will be allowed to use unrestrained force against protesters, against resistors in their various cities. And we've seen that. We saw that with Baltimore. We saw that during the George Floyd uh, uprisings. People had to be reminded that most of the major urban centers where you had the George Floyd a rebellion, if you will, uh, and that was in viciously uh, repressed, were in cities controlled by black politicians. So, you know, all of this is reflective of the generalized crisis we have uh, in this country and the tendency on the part of the political state to use the, the weapon that they've always used for control and enforcement, state violence. But the state violence also still needs to be propped up ideologically. So that's why they're moving also to to constrain and constrict the areas of, of acceptable information and knowledge uh, in order to ensure that there's not a shift in consciousness that can support uh, the radical uh, uh, opposition that has to be created in this country to stop this neo-fascist trajectory. Yes, Black Agenda Report has been saying for some time that increasingly the struggle in Black America will have to be an internal one, one that is not hobbled by false objectives of unity. You can't unify with forces in the Black community that are consciously and actively supporting the oppressor. Exactly. And that is the shift that's taking place in Black politics and in terms of the traditional Black politics, but also among the Black left. This notion of united frontism uh, is something that many, uh, many are now uh, questioning and, in fact, even rejecting. That even among the black left, there has to be a basis for unity beyond the fact that we might define ourselves as black and left. It, it has to have, we have to have a, an ideological and a political agreement among whatever forces we attempt to try to unify. So. If you have some elements that are still pushing sort of a, a partnership with, if you will, strategic and short term, uh, they claim, with neoliberal Democrats because they say they claim that's where the people are at, you know, that has to be rejected uh, because that cannot serve as a long term basis for any kind of black uh, unity, uh, in my opinion. 
So, yes, the ongoing and deepening social crisis is resulting in a, a re-examination of all, all of the strategies and practices that we have engaged in over the last few decades regarding how we build and conduct black left oppositional politics in the United States of America. And even the George Floyd, the rebellion, uh, while it had some elements that were raising demands for changes beyond just so-called criminal justice reform or this amorphous uh, call for racial justice, uh, both elements were, were in the relative minority. And because they were, uh, and because a pivot away from this amorphous racial justice and even the person of George Floyd and his uh, uh, grotesque murder, because that didn't that pivot from that to uh, demands that were broader and even more significant in terms of the social and economic conditions created 40 years of neoliberalism and their devastating impact on black and brown communities. Because that pivot didn't take place, the potential radicalization and the long-term oppositional potential of those rebellions were not realized. And so in some ways, it ended up, that rebellion ended up propping up uh, in some ways and enhancing the role of the black leadership class because they weren't challenged uh, by the social forces so that they can engage in the, the cynicism of a Juneteenth celebration and holiday a few days before the Democrats then sell out black folks once again around the issue of voting rights. They knew that was coming. They played this game by giving uh, folks this holiday that nobody asked about. And then turn right back around and play the cynical game like they were really serious about trying to pass this S-1 bill when they knew that the votes weren't there. They weren't even really seriously in support of it themselves. You know, so this is the kind of cynical game that's being played, and the black leadership class plays along with it with impunity. And that is what has to change. Uh, that's why we have to have this intensifying internal class struggle to dislodge that element and its ability to play the role of buffer it's been playing for the last uh, few decades. And you're right, it's a well-oiled machine, but that machine is, is breaking down. Uh, and we know it, uh, and they know it, but right now, Massa doesn't really understand it or see it themselves. You're a co-founder of the Black Alliance for Peace and the national organizer. And of course, uh, BAP plays the essential role in trying to revive the anti-imperialism in the Black community, but also to make the link between militarization of the police and other measures domestically that are an extension of the imperial nature uh, of the beast. I would think that BAP in this imperialist offensive is quite vulnerable. Well, we are, but you know, because of our strategy, uh, we, because we are not dependent on, for example, foundation resources, uh, because we have uh, been very disciplined in how we have built this formation, grounding it with the people, having absolutely clear uh, politics and a clear mission. Yes, we know that we have elements that are already coming up into this formation because they know that, I think the state re recognizes that there's, there's not too many elements like this in the U.S. But what we do is to, to continue with uh, putting out the messages, uh, continuing to organize independently to prepare ourselves for the intensifying uh, fight. We also know too that our, our space, uh, in terms of our ability to disseminate information, to keep our website in place, to tweet the way we tweet, is vulnerable. And we are preparing and have plans in case we have to exercise those plans if, in fact, uh, we are moved against by the state. So, yes, we know that we are attracting uh, some of the finest Africans in this country who are looking for a radical home. And they feel that they are finding that with this Black Alliance for Peace. That was Ajamu Baraka, national organizer with the Black Alliance for Peace. In recent years, increasing numbers of white people have come to favor some form of reparations for the harm Black Americans suffered under centuries of slavery and discrimination. 
but there is still no consensus among black people on what kind of reparations should be demanded from the United States. Efia Wangaza is director of the Malcolm X Center for Self-Determination in Greenville, South Carolina, and a longtime reparations advocate. Wangaza is trying to pull reparations supporters together in her state. Well, the media project is called the South Carolina Coalition Reparations Coalition. And the object of the project is to bring to the table the various formations and tendencies around the issue of reparations for Africans formerly enslaved in North America and suffering or surviving, more accurately, the impediments resulting from the evolution of the Holocaust of enslavement because, one, slavery has not ended in the United States as it is specifically set out in the 13th Amendment, which has the exception clause and provides that persons that are, quote-unquote, duly convicted of a crime can be enslaved and, in fact, are enslaved in this country without a clear definition of what constitutes a duly convicted status. And we know that following the Civil War, that the South was busy creating so-called crimes as a way of returning Africans to the plantations and forcing labor once again. Um, We had convict leasing, and then we went from convict leasing to uh, sharecropping to other forms of, uh, to low-wage and dangerous positions to what we see today as mass incarceration, where no longer are uh, folks actually sent out in large numbers as under convict leasing to do work for the planter class in the past and the corporations currently, but that the corporations bring the work to the prisons and folk are paid slave wages, if anything, to produce on behalf of the corporations. Further, we know that there is the also the battle about reenfranchisement, reentry um, once folk have been released from the concentration camps that we euphemistically call jails and, and prisons. Then we have the issue of what constitutes reparations and the right of African people and which African people, according to some, have the right to uh, define reparations and what those reparations, what reparatory judgment is going to look like. So the object is to bring together the folk in South Carolina to begin to have those discussions, in-house discussions, and to carry them forward throughout the community and the organizations and affiliations that we have that are impacting the discussion on a national and international level. Well, how many groups are we talking about in South Carolina? And what are the points of contention between them? And how many of those points are principled? And how many are competition between these various organizations? My first response is, is there a difference between competition among personalities versus how many of them are have to do with principles? In terms of the number of formations or tendencies, we have on a local level, the state level, the same formations that we have on a, on a national level. Myself, being a co-founder of Incobra, Uh, of course, represent that formation, that line of thinking, out of which NARC, the National 
African-American for Reparations Commission out of New York with led, uh, convened by Ron Daniels. And then we have ADOS here. We have independent folk here. We have the folk who support the proposal that was put out by Dr. Dre. And then we have folk who have their own thinking about what reparations should look like, bits and pieces of uh, more formal tendencies to the simple paycheck, check for reparations. We have all of that reflected in the discussion here. And it is our belief that we that it's the masses of the people who have to come together and to make that decision and the determination before there is, in fact, a definition, before there is, in fact, a method of distribution, before there is, in fact, a mandate to speak on behalf of the people. Yes, certainly, ideally, in the reparation struggle, there would be a broad-based mass demand presented so that there would be no confusion about where the legitimate claims to reparation were coming from. We have an environment in which all kinds of people, many of them non-black, are putting forward schemes for reparations, many of which have no relationship to the term at all. Exactly. In fact, here in Greenville, and I suspect that it is in other places as well, we have the white community having, especially the Democratic Party and Furman University, having taken what they consider the lead using EJIs, the Equal Justice Initiative's lynching commemoration project as a stepping stone to truth and reconciliation and reparatory judgment. Here in Greenville, it's led by Furman University, which historically, the founding president of the university was an initiator and signatory of the ordinances of secession um, and calling for and led South Carolina's campaign to secede from the uh, Union in order to preserve slavery. A major slaveholding family presuming to speak on behalf of the victims, indeed survivors, of its violation. And it presenting itself as exercising reparatory justice, and I call it redemption on the cheap, by one, handpicking, using the uh, Jackie Robinson approach to desegregation, by handpicking a young black male to uh, quote-unquote desegregate the school, then to now create a scholarship, needs-based scholarship in the name of that student whose name was Joseph Vaughn to support students with in need of financial services assistance. And of course, since it's need-based and it's all confidential, we have no way of knowing whether it's all black students who get the support or it's anybody who applies for it. They've since put up a, a statue to Joseph Vaughn which has made his family very happy, as the symbol of desegregation, which adds insult to injury in light of the fact that he, like Harvey Gantt, was uh, hand-picked to attend the school, number one. Number two, that they symbolized the myth of the one great leader, and added to that is the disregard of the fact that they all come out of a movement. They all come out of a community that was fighting, bleeding, and dying in order to assure access to the resources built by our progenitors. James Furman, the president who supported and campaigned to retain um, the Holocaust of enslavement and his family's enslavement of Africans, 
instead of changing the name of the school to Jovan or some other African, they uh, just took his name off of a building, took James Furman and just left Furman as the name. So that's supposed to be some form of preparatory judgment. While on the other hand, 500 alumni of the school established a petition calling for it to deal with its racist history and current practices. And that was in the face of their having hired a black male to be their diversity officer, which seems to be the thing these days, diversity inclusion as a form of reparatory judgment. So it's a major concern that we come to a common understanding that we find common ground among ourselves in order to beat back this effort to limit and to define reparations in a way that is comfortable and affirming of the perpetrators of the the crime of uh, slavery. Now, as you said, many of these South Carolina reparations-oriented organizations are constituents of national organizations. But given the disarray at the local level, what does that say about getting together on a national basis with a demands-oriented kind of front? Well, as a, a SNCC veteran, I'm still committed to grassroots organizing, and I believe that the power of the people rises from the bottom up, not the top down. And none of these organizations and spokespersons who presume to speak in the name of the masses of the people without any kind of authority or affirmation are still subject to the will of the people. They still have to have the people to go along with the agenda. And unless and until the masses of the people are engaged in the conversation and heard and formulate the priorities that such a definition requires, then it's meaningless. It's kind of like having another holiday, having another Juneteenth holiday. It's all political theater and with personalities as opposed to principles. Yes, but in addition to the political theater that bedevils us, especially at the local level, there are principled problems, principled disagreements within the national reparations movement that need to be worked out. And that is reflected on a local level as well. Um, When we look at the dispute between ADOS and the longer-standing organizations in COBRA, NARC, uh, the Pan-African organizations, and organizations that generally, uh, in fact, I mean, the liberal organizations like the NAACP and, and the Urban League, who have more recently embraced reparations, that that definition has to, still has to be worked out. And even within those organizations, there's not a clear um, consensus as to what the definition is. Yes, and within those, what you described as liberal organizations, they are firmly attached to the Democratic Party and more reflective of that discussion than the internal indigenous black discussion. That's right. That is correct, which again reflects the accommodationist approach, the so-called politics being that of the possible, as opposed to the building a consensus for a demand, advancing that demand on behalf of the people. And unless until that happens, then the issue of reparations remains hollow. You seem to be saying that there's no fast track to gaining some semblance of consensus in this reparations discussion. I would say that there is no track at all. I think whatever other criticisms that can be made of ADOS, ADOS comes closest to a mass track 
to building a consensus than any of the other organizations, including INCOBRA, including NARC, which are, when you look at their websites, are talking about how they've got distinguished professional people. Distinguished in what system? Professing what? Where is their work on the ground? What is their relationship to the masses of our people? Unless and until the masses of the people are engaged and are participants in building a consistent consensus through people's assemblies, through surveys, through direct communication, then again, it remains little more than political theater advancing the personal careers of various other opportunists. Yes, Ado certainly has a high media profile but that's because the principals are media professionals and skilled in social media and uh, other aspects of the internet. Well, that may well be true, but they're not the only ones who have those skills. And again, as a co-founder of Incobra and long-term member and, and even before Incobra, reparations activists, an organizer, my parents having been Garveyites, there is no excuse for the arrogance of top-down organizing and not getting out in the field and talking with the people, you know, having a showing up in, in a state or a region, having some program that amounts to little more than a program, an announcement is not organizing. It is not even adequate popular education, especially when it's in spaces that won't even accommodate and, in, that, in fact, don't even invite the grassroots members of the community. So while it is true that ADOS has media-savvy people, the fact of the matter is, is that they are using that skill in a way that effectively advances their school of thought. We need to be building something that is more akin to the Gary Conference or the National Black Power Conferences that preceded it so that we are, in fact, engaging the people who are directly impacted by whatever definition is made beyond our personal careers and agenda. You've embarked on this project in South Carolina. Are you aware of your peers in other states uh, on a similar project? I am not. I have consistently said to my associates on a national level that the fact that we can on a daily basis find common ground with white folks, work with them on our jobs, work with them in business relationships, it speaks ill of us that we cannot use that same skill to find common ground among ourselves. I launched the South Carolina Reparations Coalition on Juneteenth to give Juneteenth a substantive meaning uh, certainly uh, in the state of South Carolina, the leading secessionist state, that it also, in addition to giving the day substance, it also brings us to commemoration as opposed to celebration of the acknowledgement of a crime having been committed against us beyond the principal crime of the enslavement of us in the first place. In addition, so that we commemorate the day and we express our outrage at the violation, the principal violation, and assert our survivorship and our creditorship. So we're called upon the community at large to redefine, first of all, Juneteenth, learn something about it in its actual history and the varying days observances of Independence Day among us, and to give it a meaning beyond simply being relieved that we no longer have to work 
from sunup to sundown. To the extent that we are able to live and work with white people and white organizations, whether it's the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, U.S. Human Rights Network, and on a day-to-day basis, purportedly in the interest of the black community, corporations, purportedly in the interest, our personal interests with our jobs and such, that we must find, in fact, we have a duty to apply that same skill to find common ground in the black community among ourselves. And I challenge anyone who dares to speak in the name of black people to do precisely that. That was Afia Wangaza at the Malcolm X Center for Self-Determination in Greenville, South Carolina. In Chicago, a majority of the Board of Aldermen now support community control of the police. Jasmine Salas is co-chair of the Chicago chapter of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, the organization that is spearheading the effort. Salas says women and trans people would greatly benefit from community control of the cops. The liberation of women, trans, and gender non-conforming folks is essential for the liberation of all oppressed people. And I'm honored to be here tonight discussing how community control of the police will empower us on our pathway to overthrowing the systems that oppress us. And this conversation is also extremely timely. Just one week ago, the Chicago police announced an investigation of officer Robert Baker based on allegations of sexual misconduct an aggravated sexual assault that allegedly occurred in January 2017. Officer Baker first gained notoriety um, because he was a subject of an earlier investigation due to his ties to the Proud Boys. Um, And that investigation resulted in a five-day suspension that he has not served yet. Officer Baker is not the only officer accused of sexual assault. I met a woman named Trina Townsend, a black woman at a Chicago police board meeting in 2018. She was testifying about the sexual assault she faced by officer Kevin Glover that began when she was just 14. Trina shared her painful story. She had seen officer Glover in her community and one day she decided to flag him down and told him about sexual abuse that she was facing by her father and other men on her block. Instead of helping Trina, Officer Glover drove to an alley and proceeded to sexually assault her. He sexually assaulted her on a monthly basis for years until Trina grew into her early 20s. Decades later, Trina ran into one of Officer Glover's partners who admitted he knew about the officer's pattern of sexually assaulting young women. This inspired Trina and an organization in Chicago called the Women's All Points Bulletin to start the hashtag cops2 campaign locally to raise awareness about sexual assault at the hands of the police. Sexual assault investigations are carried out by the Chicago Police Bureau of Internal Affairs, one of two of the city's investigative bodies for police misconduct. Complaints received by internal affairs are investigated by the perpetrator's immediate supervisor or by an internal affairs division personnel. So either way, it's a member of law enforcement. Sexual assault survivors will need to retell their stories to another police officer. And having a fellow officer investigate sexual assault cases leads to extremely high bias. Most cases, between 80% and 90% of sexual assault and abuse reports made in the last decade are purged from the system with no justice. The 10 to 20% of survivors who did receive justice had to wait weeks or months for the arrest of their abuser, longer than other victims of violent crimes. The federal consent decree filed in 2019 requires that Chicago move sexual assault complaints into the hands of the second investigative body, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. This would require a change to the legislation that established COPA, and the city council has not taken any action. The Fraternal Order of Police, a police union, is lobbying against this 
and lobbies against civilian oversight overall, including in response to instances of sexual assault. Uh, just to give you an example, an Illinois law uh, that was passed in 2017 titled the Sexual Assault Incident and Procedure Act would have required independent investigations of sexual assault crimes. But the FOP in Chicago lobbied and created a special exception for the Chicago Police Department. Police officers are well aware that their colleague, colleagues commit sexual assault and are also unlikely to take action when the perpetrator is a community member. In March, just to give you a recent example that made me sick to my stomach, in March, reports surfaced of a 10-year-old girl who suffered a string of brutal sexual assaults. The police took months to arrest one of the five assailants, claiming a lack of evidence despite three existing rape kits. And I will say on the topic of rape kits, there is a massive backlog from sexual assault survivors due to a lack of transparency within the system with some survivors waiting two years for their kids to be tested. Trans and gender non-conforming folks are more vulnerable to facing sexual assault, including by police officers. Officers have been accused of sexually harassing trans folks and sex workers with little justice, little to no justice. Police officers have also been known to misgender trans people while in custody and use transphobic terms to humiliate folks. And let's just be clear, misgendering is not just painful, it's also deeply traumatic and adds another layer of trauma to already being in police custody. Aisha Love, a trans woman who was in police custody, told the Chicago Tribune in 2019 that she was harassed by officers when she was in custody and the officers even asked if they could strip search her. Now the Chicago police does have a TIGN policy, which is trans, intersex and gender non-conforming policy. Um, the original TIGN policy did not lead to much change in practice, but uh, a recently updated version of the policy requires police to use correct pronouns and names and not question individuals' gender or sexual genitals. And it's unclear as to whether this updated policy will have an impact of the trans people uh, in police custody. But beyond sexual assault cases, women and trans folks are still the victims of police violence. The Chicago police made headlines in December 2020 after footage of a raid uh, that occurred in 2019 on Anjanette Young's house was released to the public. Anjanette was getting ready for bed after a long day of work as a social worker when the police burst into her home with their guns drawn. She was handcuffed while completely nude and pleaded with officers that they had the wrong home. Mayor Lori Lightfoot tried to cover up the crime by attempting to block the release of the footage. Anjanette and her legal team weren't even given all of the footage that the city had until they went to court. And of course, women are also the victims of police shootings. Rakia Boyd, Angelique Stiles, and Betty Jones were all killed by the Chicago police. And nationally, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, and countless others have been murdered by police. And it's not just police shootings, it's also police torture. As folks may know, Chicago is the epicenter of police torture. And typically, and very wrongfully, when people talk about torture survivors, they will usually use male-centered language, which is incorrect. We know that men, women, folks of all genders have been tortured by the police. And just to give you an example, um, when Latanya Jennifer Sublet was 19 years old, she went to an Area 2 police station to provide information to detectives about a crime. Police actually thought that she herself committed the crime and tortured her for 12 hours until she signed a false confession. She said at a Chicago Alliance event in 2018 that she thought she was doing the right thing by going down to the police station to turn in uh, evidence. But that led to her serving 21 years in prison for a crime she didn't commit. 
she is released today. She is out and she is an activist with the Chicago Torture Justice Center for women who have endured police torture and fighting to create a movement that includes all victims of police torture. Many themes emerge from the context and the history that I just laid out, but I want to name a few and specifically discuss how community control of the police would end them. First, police officers clearly still operate with impunity. As was discussed earlier, the police are an occupying force in our communities and Chicago is no exception, especially on the south side and the west side of the city, which is majority black and majority brown, Latino. The blue wall of silence works to protect officers who have committed sexual assault and torture. And in fact, none of the officers that I've mentioned have faced any jail time or any accountability, nor have the systems that enable their abuse been changed to prevent sexual assault from happening to more women, trans or gender non-conforming folks. Nothing at all has significantly changed. It's clear that under capitalism, the police cannot and will not investigate themselves. Secondly, the police have a history towards a history of violence towards women, gender non-conforming and trans people. Nationally, 40% of the police have been involved in domestic violence cases. How can we expect officers to serve and protect when they don't even protect their own families? And diversifying the police force does not help. We must begin exploring alternatives to policing, thinking outside of public safety more broadly to include trained professionals like social workers. And our new ordinance, the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance, specifically sets some powers aside to investigate alternatives and fund them. And we must fire officers who have a known pattern of sexual misconduct, misogyny, and transphobia. Community control of the police, to paraphrase Frank, gives us the power to determine who polices our communities, normal, racist, sexist, and transphobic cops, and how our communities are policed, what policies are put in place. When the community is put in charge, we can instill a sense of urgency because we can hold police officers and this racist system accountable. And our movement must be inclusive of women, trans and gender non-conforming people to ensure we are including the voices of everyone, everyone who is impacted by police impunity. The ECPS ordinance through a binding referendum to voters in 2022 would ultimately create a council that could hire and fire cops appoint the chief of COPA, the investigative body that I pointed to earlier, and the police superintendent, and have a say in negotiating the FLP contract and the police budget. All of these would empower gender minorities. And this is kind of just a, a fact about the FLP contract. Currently, the FLP contract allows officers to delay questioning for 24 to 48 hours after claims of misconduct, giving officers a clear advantage. For sexual assault survivors who often feel pressure to corroborate their stories with every ounce of evidence, this is unfair and completely unacceptable. We cannot beg officers to change. We cannot beg for more training. We cannot beg for body cameras. We cannot beg for window dressing and minor superficial changes. We must demand community control of the police. Power concedes nothing without a demand. And so we must demand community control and we must take control over the police. Thank you. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.